Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Dom D'Agostino is an associate professor at the University of South Florida, where he teaches at the Morsani College of Medicine and the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology. He focuses on neuropharmacology, medical biochemistry, physiology, and neuroscience. And if you ask me, He's one of the world's leading experts on all things ketosis. So today, get ready, we're doing a deep dive on all things keto. Dom, welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. It it is such an honor to have you, the king of keto, if you will. And I'm going to start with keto. The ketogenic diet in 2021 seems to be everywhere. And that can be good and it can also be bad as I think there are some common, there's some myths out there, if you will. So we're going to start with the state of keto in 2021. What are some of the most common myths you hear about the ketogenic diet, which you'd like to clear up? Yeah, there are a lot of myths running around, and that's going to happen when you have a diet that is embraced and advocated by a wide range of people. So prior to maybe, I don't know, I guess prior to Atkins, but more recently, prior to like 10 years ago, it was pretty much a medical therapy for drug-resistant epilepsy. And then even in the epilepsy world, where I presented 10 years ago, it moved from pediatric epilepsy, to, and they figured they demonstrated it works very good for adults too. So I guess the big thing that I see going around is that the ketogen if you follow a ketogenic diet, many advocates of this approach are saying that there's a metabolic advantage and you don't need to count calories, you don't need to count your macronutrients, you just eat these foods and keep carbs at this and you'll lose weight. Probably the biggest application of the ketogenic diet why people follow it is to lose weight. But there's really no you, there's no scientific evidence to support a, a major metabolic advantage. It, it is true that urinary ketones go up, and if you're in a state of ketosis and you're peeing, those ketones are calories. So you might that might be only a hundred calories per day, and and someone in a heavy state of ketosis. So I guess you could say it's a cookie or two, but. There's also a belief that among people who advocate the ketogenic diet that carbohydrates are bad and carbohydrates are not the bad guy. So it's our reaction to carbohydrates, specific forms of carbohydrates, sugar, processed carbohydrates. So I'd say like there's no metabolic advantage. You do need to count calories. You need to get proper macronutrient ratios adjusted to achieve a state of ketosis, it's the only diet that's measured by an objective biomarker. So that's blood, urine, or breath ketones. And we measure all those types of ketones. And carbohydrates are not the bad guy. So I would say like that's the three, depending on what your objectives are. Keto is not eating a jar of almond butter and a pound of bacon for breakfast. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> yeah I've probably done that one time or another, but... Uh, but yeah, it's actually hard to gain weight off ketogenic diets because of these appetite satiating effects. And and also, to be honest, I mean, it's removing a lot of hyper palatable foods that are enjoyable to eat. So if you are have to adhere to a select, it's a restrictive diet. And if you have to adhere to a select group of foods, you inadvertently restrict. So in that way, it becomes an effective tool for creating a calorie deficit. So 
at the highest level, it, it seems like things started from in a therapeutic sense, epilepsy. And here we are today, it's mainstream. And for, for those listening, who should consider going keto? And on the flip side, who should not go keto? And if I'm just a, a thriving, if everyone from a thriving, energetic, young, healthy woman in her 20s or 30s to all the way to maybe someone in their 60s plus, we've got a variety of ages, shapes and sizes as listeners. Who's keto for? Who's it not for? Or is it tough to generalize? Yeah, well, it's not that tough. If you go to the literature and just evaluate the, the literature on this on a wide range of things, a big, the foundation of our lab and our research is really investigating the ketogenic diet for seizure disorders. So we do a lot of that. And that's a pretty big, that's like 65 million people globally have some type of seizure disorder. So this is actually could be the most effective tool and even more effective than drugs. So and it, it produces metabolic efficiency and metabolic stability in the brain. And it also changes the neuropharmacology of the brain in a way that's neuroprotective and anti-seizure. And that when I realized that 10 or more 12 years ago, I became so interested in this topic, it became the foundation of my research, really studying the, the effects on the brain. So people who want to lose weight, people who want to achieve reduced glycemic variability, if they have type 2 diabetes, it's very effective for that. Inflammation, markers go down when you follow it could be a result of losing weight, but even independent of losing weight, people do achieve a reduction in inflammatory markers. The health of the gastrointestinal mucosa is really improved in some people who follow the ketogenic diet, and that's another discussion. But really from my perspective as a neuroscientist, it has many beneficial effects on the brain and maybe even things for like anxiety, depression, traumatic brain injury. These are all things that we've researched, that we write about. And for people who have certain disorders may want to avoid the ketogenic diet, for example, kidney stones have been reported higher, at least in kids. But if you take electrolytes like potassium citrate and things, and they did studies that showed it was like not a significant increase in kidney stones, but something you might want to, want to watch out for. Pancreatitis, certain forms of liver disease, although for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, the ketogenic diet may be effective for that. And for a wide range of people, for reasons we don't completely know, have a fat intolerance. So they may just have lower levels of fat oxidating enzymes, uh, lipase enzymes in the gut, or if you have carnitine deficiency, carnitine helps transfer the fatty acids into the mitochondria. That's a condition where you definitely not want to use the ketogenic diet. So yeah, not a whole bunch of reasons why. And the side effects uh, of the ketogenic diet, some people do have them, but they are very transient and typically manageable once you kind of adjust to the diet. And are there gender differences in terms of response or success with keto as we talk about men versus women? Yeah, that's a good question. And we actually recently published a paper, at least on different types of therapeutic ketosis you know, using exogenous ketones and other things. The from the it's the ketogenic diet has been used for over a hundred years now for epilepsy. And what we see in that group of people is that the therapeutic benefits are achieved by both male and female. Although 
the menstrual cycle seems to change blood ketones and other markers. And also for females who have seizure disorders, when they follow a ketogenic diet, sometimes they can have breakthrough seizures during their menstrual period. So there's just more variability in females. And anecdotally, the females that benefit the most from the ketogenic diet have things like polycystic ovary syndrome, which is associated with insulin resistance, and females that have type 2 diabetes and um, obesity, insulin resistance, they are very responsive to the ketogenic diet. Anecdotally or empirically, female athletes have reported some thyroid issues with the ketogenic diet. My interpretation of the literature and these reports are that many females who are athletic are kind of over-exercising or calorie restricting, and they try the ketogenic diet, which is being used on a background of excessive exercise and also a calorie restriction, which could potentially lower thyroid the conversion of T4 to T3, uh, that enzyme is sort of regulated to some extent by the level of insulin. And we produce ketones through suppressing insulin signaling. So if you go on a ketogenic diet and you're exercising, especially and you're calorie restricted, that insulin level will go low and that could potentially result in lower active thyroid. And it seems to be more pronounced in females. And in terms of something I've read, it's is it true that it's specific to to women with a specific body fat percentage? I think it was like less than 10% or 15%. Does it have to do with something with, with body fat? Yeah, so that's a good point too. So once you get below your ideal body, and this would apply really to any kind of diet, but the insulin can get low to the point where it also is affecting, they become amenorrheic and they don't have a regular menstrual cycle. And also women that are breastfeeding, I get a lot of questions about, is it okay to be on a ketogenic diet if I'm pregnant or breastfeeding? Anecdotally, and I'm not sure this has been studied, but lactation is really reduced if females are on a low-carb diet or especially a ketogenic diet, they fail to produce uh, milk. And that seems to be regulated by some extent to our levels of insulin and other metabolic hormones. The ketogenic diet is a fairly restrictive, extreme diet, and you don't have to go keto to get a lot of the benefits, just simply lowering your carbs to like 100 grams a day. Non-processed, non-excess sugar carbs can usually give a wide variety of benefits for women, and they don't have to go. There seems to be this threshold if you get below 50 grams of carbs a day, you start getting some of these hormonal issues in women who are sensitive. On the other hand, women who have things like polycystic ovary syndrome or type 2 diabetes are hyper-responsive to a ketogenic diet and can have vast improvements. But the the people who have the side effects with the ketogenic diets are the very people who probably don't have to use a ketogenic diet right. to achieve metabolic optimization. So, so these are you know relatively athletic, fit women and CrossFit women, and there tends to be a lot of interest in that group of people with the ketogenic diet. And my advice would be like try the you might want to try the ketogenic diet, but you probably just ha- want to do a low carb diet to achieve the benefits you're looking forward to just be more fat adapted and more metabolically flexible.
So you just, you just mentioned 50 to 100 grams of carbs. So I think you just, you made a lot of women very happy right now who are interested in experimenting with keto. So if we're going to focus on that 50 to 100, and we've got a, a very excited female listener who's like, all right, what, what, do, what do I eat? What, what's, what, what should they, in terms of carbs, if we're going to try to get between 50 and 100, what are your favorite sources for women who are very excited right now to go grocery shopping? Yeah, well, I'm a big advocate of a plant-based diet too. People ask me if I'm carnivore or vegetarian, so I'm an omnivore, and that approach I think works well all around for everybody. So I usually have one or two salads per day. I get probably most of my carbohydrates come from berries. So we have a blueberry farm right next to us, and I'm working on setting up to grow blueberries. So berries, nuts, avocado. These are all things that we have sort of on our property. And I have dark chocolate and blueberries every day. <laughs> and I usually have uh, stir fried vegetables and one or two salads per day. So that essentially will make up 100 grams of carbohydrates. I typically get about 30 grams of wild of carbs from wild blueberries. That's pretty high in fiber. And then another 20 or 30 grams from dark chocolate. And then the rest of my carbs just come from uh, salads and, and vegetables. So how dark is that dark chocolate? I tend to buy, or my wife does shopping, she buys the Lind brand and she gets like milk chocolate and stuff. She doesn't follow a ketogenic diet. She tolerates carbs really well, but she gets the 80 or 90 uh, percent caco chocolate for, for me. So I usually, and it, it's kind of self-limiting. Like if I eat, I break off maybe a third of that or about a third of it. And I have that almost every night and I have that and I don't want to really have more. And the glycemic response is pretty minimal to that. And I tend to have it like after dinner. So it, that, and I wear, as we talked about a continuous glucose monitor and these things have pretty small impact. And the blueberries I mix in, this may sound weird, but with sour cream and cocoa powder and maybe some monk fruit or uh, stevia or something. And I kind of swirl it into a mousse. And sometimes I switch out the sour cream with uh, coconut cream and mix it up to like, and I put for it's frozen blueberries. So that's something that I have literally every night. So cinnamon, cocoa powder, a little bit of sweetener and and frozen blueberries and then i have that with my dark chocolate and that's like something i look forward to every night <laughs> so you're appealing to my sweet tooth right now and i'm just going to go straight to keto treats and sweeteners do you have any favorite you know, there's so many look to take a step back the world of natural products is evolving rapidly and there's so many great new brands that 10 years ago didn't exist and so I'm curious, like, do you have any favorite keto treats that you buy? And I also want to spend time on sweeteners. There are also, there, there are so many different types of sweeteners, some good, some maybe not so good. And some it's, in my opinion, a little still early to, to know. And, and do you have an opinion on, on that as well? So, but let's start with your favorite, someone's going grocery shopping right now. What are some of your favorite keto treats? Yeah, I do. I'm not a big fan of snacking like during the day, but I do have snacks every night. And sometimes I'll switch out that dark chocolate with people send me a lot of different types of snack foods to test. Like I literally get probably like five to 10 per week. <laughs> and I kind of stick to staple foods. If I'm cooking, yummy foods, I pronounce Y-U-M-I foods makes a whole bunch of like baking powders, 
So I had a chocolate cupcake made with yummy foods and that has a completely flat line. So that has like no effect on my glucose at all. And some of the recent snacks that I've tested include the perfect keto bars are pretty flat. Uh, Trace, uh, HVMN sent me some samples and those bars had a very minimal glycemic response and my ketones you know, stayed elevated. And the last bar that I tested uh, and I have a bunch of it, real nutty bars, and it's made by F-Bomb Nutrition. So those bars did pretty well. It did, it rose my glute. It does have some honey in it and it, maybe some other things in it. And it spiked me maybe only 10 to 15 milligrams. But in comparison to things that you get at the grocery stores, which I haven't really been too impressed with, those three options were pretty, they're kind of like my go-to snacks that I keep on hand. And in terms of sweeteners, how do you rank them? There's so many options. Yeah, so we've experimented a lot with different sweeteners. I had some gummy bears the other day that were had allulose in it, and it really spiked me. But wow. I had allulose powder, and that did not spike me, which made me think there was something within the gummy bears. Uh, and it's this is like the most popular sugar-free gummy bear on the market. I'm kind of forgetting the name of it. But, but the things that I like to use, stevia, a good organic sort of stevia powder, not the stevia that comes in, I don't know, the store-bought packets with other things like maltodextrin and things like that. But we use monk fruit, stevia, and I'm experimenting, and a little bit of erythritol and allulose mixtures. So I generally kind of stay away from that, but I have been experimenting more with allulose with baking. And But monk fruit and stevia are probably the things that we use most. And I'm not, I'm a big fan of kind of weaning off sweeteners and using them in just a smaller amounts. And over time, if I have something off the store shelf that's sweetened, it's just like really nauseatingly hyper sweet to me. So your taste buds change over time. Or if I have something that my wife is eating that she thinks is moderately sweet, it's like way too sweet for me. Yeah, I've encountered the same thing with, with, you mentioned stevia and monk fruit. Those are kind of what what I'm experimenting and have my CGM on. I've also tried levels, which we'll talk about. Stevia, if it's so many of the products are just too strong for me. And to me, a little bit of monk fruit is just the sweet spot. And I get like no response in, in a good way when I'm wearing my CGM. I'm yeah, just... monk fruit is probably the best CGM friendly. I think of all the sweeteners out there, monk fruit probably ranks the highest uh, on my list. Of, I know it's a little bit more expensive and yeah. some food companies I ask like, why don't you put in monk fruit? And they're like, well, it's more expensive. So some use sucralose and I will, when they asked me for honest feedback, I was like, the taste is really good. But if you switch out the sucralose, which I'm still a little hesitant, take with monk fruit, it would be a better product. And many companies just are not willing to invest in in switching out a really cheap sweetener like sucralose with monk fruit. Well, for a future discussion, I have a product to send you to try out. That's well, got monk fruit. Products. Well, okay. I, we'll, 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 we'll come back to that after the call. We got something for you. I'm curious also, and we'll move on from grocery shopping after this, but I am curious about bread. Yeah, I don't, I think, I'm trying to think, occasionally I'll have bread if I go to like my parents, but it's been so long since I had bread, but I have been 
experimenting with some of the baking powders that come from yummy foods. I'd mentioned that. And then we have almond flour, hazelnut flour is tends to be a pretty good, but the breads are pretty heavy and they kind of taste a bit nutty. So generally speaking, I don't eat a lot of bread, but my wife likes it and probably has it every day. And uh, we've been experimenting with different nut powders and coconut powders for making bread. But I would like to find a really good company that has a bread that's, and I've tasted a few, but I'm not 100% satisfied with the keto or low carb breads that I've tried so far. I just recently tried a base culture. Have you tried that one? I haven't tried that one yet. It's, uh, I'm curious to get your take on that. For me, when I wear the CGM, again, essentially no response in a good way. So I'm curious to get your opinion on that one. So I'm, I'm going to come back to fats and, you know, fats are a cornerstone of the keto diet. And yeah. there's one specifically that a lot of people think has gotten a bad rap, coconut oil. What's your take on co- coconut oil? Wrongly demonized? Yeah, well, coconut oil has been and will probably continue to be demonized because it is technically a saturated, pretty much almost fully saturated fat. And saturated fat, as we all know, is associated with an elevation of cholesterol. In particular, it will elevate LDL cholesterol, but also HDL to some extent. And then that elevation of cholesterol from the medical community is pathophysiologically linked to cardiovascular disease. So as an independent risk factor, I am on the fence about that and inclined to believe that it's basically a non-issue. It's very negligible, the rise in LDL from coconut oil. And I think coconut oil have consumed 30 grams a day, probably up to even 50 grams a day if you're on a ketogenic diet would be totally fine. And it's definitely safer than like soy or corn oil by far. So these vegetable oils, polyunsaturated fatty acids are rancid by the time they're even on the food market shelves. And let alone if we cook with them, then we hyperoxygenate them or we hyperoxidize them to the point where they become free radical generators in the body and they can trigger inflammatory reactions. Whereas coconut oil is much more stable in that regard. And uh, it's just a better all around fat than what the medical and nutrition community, conventional, you know, community is saying that we should eat, phase out, get rid of the coconut oil and animal fats and just take in more vegetable fats like soy and corn, which is crazy. So what what are the go-to oils in your household? We have a good olive oil brand. I forget the name, but it's like sourced from the Mediterranean and it's like tested. There's uh, a good olive oil. Um, we have some avocado oil. I was using some of Mark Sisson's products, yeah. although I haven't had them recently in butter and ghee. So olive oil, butter, ghee, and avocado oil. I had macadamia nut oil for a while, but just got, it was a bit nutty, but there's sort of like my go-to because we eat sort of fatty cuts of meat and fish and egg yolks and things like that. We don't you know, use a whole lot of extra oils, but for salads and things like that, a good quality olive oil is very good. And and although we've kind of touched on this earlier, any more advice for someone who leans plant-based, who wants to 
try keto. You talked about some of the healthy avocado nuts and some of the healthy oils, but any other, any other additional thoughts for someone out there who just doesn't really get excited about animal products? Yeah. The very first blog that we did with the keto nutrition.org web, website was on a plant-based ketogenic diet because I had so many emails, like every day I probably get at least one or two emails about a vegetarian or a vegan that's following, that wants to follow a ketogenic diet, especially in the context of a major cancer, you know, institute is very interested in that because a plant-based version of the ketogenic diet may actually be an ideal diet when undergoing cancer treatment because of the, you're sort of combining the benefits of the two, right? So a plant-centric ketogenic diet does not have to be difficult if you're a vegetarian because, of course, eggs and dairy fat and things like that can make up the fat. But you also have nuts, avocado, extra virgin olive oil we talked about. If you're on a vegan diet, it's difficult, but it's not impossible. And it's, it's relatively easy to probably do low carb. It's going to be difficult to do to drop the carbs low enough that you'd be in a state of ketosis. But you could probably make up, there are various plant-based protein sources, like protein isolates that could like, you could get your protein from, but just getting that amount of fat, unless you're using a ton of coconut oil and extra virgin olive oil and eating a lot of nuts is gonna be hard because if you're vegetarian, dairy fat and egg yolks are really good source of the fat and just, uh, easy to incorporate into the diet, but vegan, not so much possible because people reach out to me and show that they're doing it, but it just takes a lot of time and effort for meal planning. So you mentioned protein. What are your favorite sources of plant-based protein? I don't really, plants are not like my go-to source for protein, but you do have of course, like nuts and legumes. My wife makes is makes this traditional Hungarian lentil soup, and sometimes we'll just have days without meat-free days. I would say plant-based proteins. Man, I don't even count really the protein from plant, but I probably do get on some days a significant amount. But legumes are really good, and nuts, and I don't know all the different. I, get a variety of different vegetables and they have, if they're combined, you can make complete proteins, but you really have to do your homework sure. in combining and sourcing different ingredients when you're developing a meal plan. And we do, I, I want to collaborate with a, with a dietitian to actually develop a book on this topic because I think it will definitely help uh, with a lot of clinical trials where thinking about, especially in the cancer world, where we can easily make that an option. And it would actually be good to partner with a food company that could prepare like ready-made meals, whole food meals for that, because there's a very big need. So if there's any entrepreneurs out there who are developing and packaging whole food ketogenic meals, be, it'd be great to work with them on plant-based. I'm sure we have someone listening. And I will, I may have some ideas for you. So we love the microbiome here and it, it, the microbiome loves diversity. And as you mentioned, sometimes the keto diet can be somewhat exclusionary. So how do you think about the, the ketogenic diet and how it can affect the microbiome? Yeah. Uh... I just got finished teaching the gastrointestinal section to the med students in physiology. And we talked, although it's not 
really in the medical textbooks yet and they're not tested on it, it becomes the topic I get most questions about from medical students. But it's really almost not to the point where it's formally taught yet. It's working its way into the medical literature as far as being taught to med students. So what, I mean, what we can say is there's some indication that if you follow certain types of ketogenic diets, it could reduce the diversity of the gut microbiome. That That is really dependent upon the types of food, how you formulate the ketogenic diet, especially with types of prebiotic fibers, and you have a variety of different plant, leafy greens, artichoke, avocado, broccoli, blueberries, all these things are providing fuel for optimal gut microbiome, in my opinion. And under some conditions, you might want to use probiotics uh, if you're starting a ketogenic diet. There's pretty big shifts in the microbiome. But generally speaking, most people who embrace a keto or low carb diet or ketogenic diet, they have you know cured themselves of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth through SIBO. So they see less of that, which is if people that are on a processed foods, high carb diet tend to have an overgrowth of pathogenic linked bugs in the gut and the body over time will, if you restrict their food, glucose and processed carbohydrates, there's a positive shift in the diversity of the microbiome that is favorable from the perspective of reducing gut inflammation, reducing bloating and irritability in the gut when people follow a low carb approach. So that's why I'm a little bit hesitant for a very strict ketogenic diet in the realm of epilepsy, it's a go-to, but it does restrict plants and fruits to a certain degree that it could be impacting the diversity of the gut microbiome. But I actually eat more plants on a ketogenic diet than I did growing up eating a high-carb diet pretty much all my life, you know, because so I eat way more. I never ate like salads or vegetables every day. It was more like just steak and potatoes and cereals and things like that. Whereas now I have a lot of gut healthy salads and vegetables and nuts and artichokes and leafy greens and everything. So I think my gut health is very good now, much better than it was eating a high carb diet. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned, uh, kidney stones earlier and I'm 46 now, but my late twenties, I very much subscribe to a steak and martini lifestyle with cottage cheese for breakfast every day. And I found myself with kidney stones. Is it genetic too? Because a lot of kidney stones are tend to run in the family. No. And like, they've never returned. At least I don't think they're genetic, never returned. I've been fine. And I was just convinced it was the excess cottage cheese and steak and martinis every night back then. And I kind of, I consider myself an omnivore, but largely plant-based if you will, and don't consume as much alcohol at all. Like I did in my twenties. That will do it. Yeah. Heavy protein casein, very acidic diet will promote kidney stone, especially if you're not hydrated properly and you're not getting in neutralizing minerals like high potassium magnesium and things like that can offset kidney stones but yeah alcohol red lots of red meat and uh, casein or uh, dairy protein can be contributors so you you mentioned magnesium so let's segue to supplements are are there supplements that someone following keto can probably benefit from taking 
Yeah, I'm, I I think supplements should be just supplements. I'm a big food, whole foods person, but there are definitely supplements that I take every day that are beneficial. And sometimes some of these things can be taken intermittently when they're needed. And sometimes there's things that I take sort of every day. The literature suggests that you should, if you're on a ketogenic diet, your body, many people become deficient in carnitine. And in many ways, that's a good thing because your body is oxidizing and burning so much fat, it kind of burns through all its carnitine because carnitine is a transporter for fat. So in kids that follow the ketogenic diet and epilepsy, that was the thing that was always showing up in the blood work, like they're carnitine deficient and also maybe selenium. So carnitine, maybe selenium, but I eat a lot of food that's high in both of those things. So I generally don't supplement them. I do supplement magnesium. And my, some of my blood work showed initially that my magnesium level was low. And I tried some, I think, magnesium oxide in, in the beginning. This is 10 years ago. And it didn't change it. But then I started using a product called Calm. And it was like magnesium citrate, maybe a malate. That got the level up a bit, like into the normal range. But now I use different forms of magnesium glycinate or bisglycinate. And I'm using a form now that's like seven different. It's like magnesium taurate. Bio, Bio-optimizers makes a form of magnesium that has really elevated my magnesium from the blood tests. So, but there's also magtine. There's different forms of magnesium chelated with amino acids that have really, you know, helped bring my magnesium level up. That was low when I followed the ketogenic diet, and I just I like the calming effect of magnesium and the sleep promoting effects of magnesium. So I recommend that. And digestive enzymes can be helpful for people who just cannot tolerate the high fat. And probiotics too, especially if you're having some GI discomfort when you're starting a ketogenic diet, those two things can be very helpful, uh, especially if I'm eating to gain weight. So eating to gain, eating low carb to gain weight can be difficult just because of the fat content. So the digestive enzymes and probiotics really help in those those areas. So I'm gonna segue back to continuous glucose monitoring and you're involved with levels. I've tried levels. I love following your posts on Instagram about different food experiments you're conducting and how it affects your <laughs> your glucose. And you share the share the charts. What can what can people really learn from this type of real-time monitoring? Who has the, the most to benefit from this? Yeah, this is what we're, our research now with Dr. Allison Hall from the Florida Medical Clinic is really taking people who are non-diabetic. They have maybe some weight to lose, but not technically obese. They are just looking to get improve their metabolic awareness, become metabolically optimized and improve their biomarkers so that they can have more energy and be healthy. So I think if you fit into that category, uh, the, a continuous glucose monitor can really promote what I call metabolic awareness. So there are a lot of different biomarkers that we can measure in the blood that will give us a snapshot of our metabolism and how we are reacting to food and how food is influencing our physiology. And a continuous trace of your glucose is by far the best. If we have to pick, I hate, you know, having to pick just one biomarker. So a continuous glucose trace is by far, I can't think of any other biomarker that would be a really beautiful snapshot of your metabolism and, and how food is interacting with our bodies and influencing our physiology. 
So it's really awesome that we can slap on hardware and Levels uses the Abbott Precision Libre or, or the Abbott Libre device or uh, Freestyle Libre or the Dexcom device now. So there's different hardware that we can slap on. And then the software that Levels is sort of instructional and informative and can give feedback to the user to help optimize their food choices, their gives information about their exercise. If the CGM device is coupled with other wearables, like an Aura Ring, or I wear a Fitbit, my wife wears an Aura Ring, the Whoop is also a great wearable device, then you can correlate your continuous glucose monitor, your glycemic variability associated with that with other things like exercise and sleep. And and then that information can go into the levels platform and it starts, you know, integrating all these different biomarkers, whether it's a physiological biomarker, metabolic biomarker, and the even the federal government, the military, NASA is very instrument they're very interested in instrumenting the warfighter or instrumenting the astronaut because these people get into technologies where there's a, a million different dials on the machine on a fighter jet, but there's no dial on the human where we can understand what is happening physiologically. So, so having a wearable device where that's collecting all this information, you can adjust the dietary protocol, the supplement protocol, the sleep, the exercise, sunlight, what have you, and get information, actionable information on how to adjust and optimize these variables. So there's a lot to unpack there. And you're preaching the choir as I wear my Aura Whoop Fitbit right now yeah. as I speak to you. And, and I, I'm not wearing levels currently, but I've, but I've dabbled with it and thought it was fascinating. So I'll tell you one experiment I did. And I don't have a problem with glucose. My, it, it, it's pretty normal. And, and for the most part, when I did my experiment, I had a pretty standard baseline that didn't really deviate much. But I, I brought back the, the teenage boy in me and said, all right, like how high can I get this thing? And so I, I did an experiment once where, you know, I went out with my wife on the weekend and our kids. I got an impossible burger, French fries, frozen margarita. Then after I got like a couple donuts and I was like, all right, let's see how high this thing can go. Sure enough, boom. It went to like 160 or something and, and then like did the classic double spike, which apparently is good. And then it eventually came back down and it's like, all right, then that was Saturday or su Sunday. Then Monday, I'd go back to my regular routine. Intermittent fasting really works for me. I eat largely plant-based. I'll do like a, a shake at home with some, you know, our, our collagen and some greens and healthy fats and so forth. And like a pretty good, usually plant-based dinner. Then I'd just be normal, fine. And so... For me, it was interesting to see like how I, how high I could get this thing. It reminded me of like taking a car out, like when I was a teenager, how fast can this thing go? Um, yeah, yeah. but I'm curious, okay. I, I learned that like, when does it come problematic? Cause for most people, if they have a donut or what have you, it's going to, it's probably going to spike unless maybe it's a special keto treat or, or keto donut, if you will. When does frequency come a problem? So for me, if like, okay, if I know if I do X, Y, or Z, it spikes, and maybe that happens twice a week, when does it become problematic? Like, is it, you're spiking daily? So like, when does frequency, in your opinion, come into play with like glucose? When, when is that problematic? And when is it something it's like, eh, if I have a donut, it's going to spike, I'm going to have the donut and I'll move on. 
Yeah, that's a really good question that we know have an answer to in people who have diabetes. So sure. we know that less is best. Glycemic variability or an increase in spikes is directly correlated with poor outcomes. We have less information when it comes to the non-diabetic. So that's actually part of the research we're doing with, with Levels and Florida Medical Clinic with Dr. Allison Hull and her patient population there. We're putting CGMs and, and tracking a ton of biomarkers, cytokines. We're getting psychological data, cognitive data, all this stuff. So I think we'll have some answers to that soon, but I'll give you sort of my opinion. Our ancestors really had little or no spikes at all. I mean, sugar was very rare. Even in the modern industrial age, when we started using sugar, it was kind of used more or less like a spice, like pepper or something like that. So, but only in the last maybe 50 years, is it part of our, like a macronutrient staple, <laughs> like sugar is just like, we're like basically walking around with IVs. So early ancestors, like were 99% flatlined if they wore CGMs. So I think less is really best for people who are healthy, Although when I do eat even wild blueberries, I was kind of surprised by the spike of that. I can It can shoot up to 120 if I eat like a full heaping cup of wild blueberries with no other, like if I don't mix it with coconut cream or something like that. So the CGM is wildly variable depending upon how you mix the food together. And I also noticed that there are a couple things that you can do to improve your glycemic variability. And one is eating a big salad which has fat in it from extra virgin olive oil and maybe some nuts and things like that. And then eating your protein uh, meal. And if you're eating carbohydrates, having fat and fiber first and then having you know, your carbohydrates, protein and carbohydrates after that. So the fat and fiber delay gastric absorption to where that decreases the hit of, and it's pretty significant too. And there's actually publications on this. And another thing that we've, I've, one insightful thing is that if you go for a walk right after your meal, it really takes the cap off of that postprandial glycemic excursion. If I'm using technical terms, I can knock it down by definitely more than 50% just with a casual walk with my dogs after breakfast or after dinner. Wow. So post, post meal, and it doesn't have to be, you don't have to run a marathon. You could just, we just walk around our property with the dogs and that can cut the glycemic response in half. So that becomes, so simply not just the macronutrient profile of your meal, which will actually be more favorable if it's lower in carbohydrates, but the order in which you eat your food and also just simply incorporating some, you know, even 10 minute walk after you eat, uh, especially a big meal at nighttime, it's going to be really beneficial to just get moving right after that. Nothing strenuous, of course, because you don't want to do super intense exercise after a big meal, but a casual walk will pay big dividends in the long run. Wow. Fascinating. So in closing, you know, but before I before we touch on kind of, kind of the future and the science and, and what is what you're working on, I'd be remiss not to, to mention your famous Navy SEAL research. So can, can you just fill in the audience about that research and some of the takeaways for the, the regular non-military person listening? Yeah, so last week was the Office of Navy Research Undersea Medicine Program, and that's the essentially the scientific arm that works with scientists to develop technologies that can be taken to the field and used by the guys in the field. 
So I have been researching therapeutic ketosis as a way to control oxygen toxicity seizures, which are a limitation for Navy SEAL divers. They use a closed circuit rebreather and high oxygen will trigger a seizure under military operational situations. So there's really no way to predict or prevent them. And we're working on both ways, like wearable technologies that can predict a seizure and income, uh, impending seizure, which is a whole nother topic. And then technologies that can extend the limitations and the physiological resilience of the warfighter. And therapeutic ketosis seems to be, it does it better than any other drug that we know of. And we've did lots of rodent model studies to demonstrate this. And then the guys, I communicate with quite a few guys in the field that use this, operators, we call them. And then we also have ongoing studies at Duke University where they have an amazing environmental research facility there that the military uses, NASA uses, these big hyperbaric chambers where guys can get in and they use a simulator. They look at reaction time, decision-making in the state of ketosis under conditions of high-pressure oxygen. And they actually, they wear EEGs and they push them to an EEG biomarker indication of an impending seizure. And then they decompress once they reach that latency to seizure. So they basically monitor how much time it takes for them to reach an EEG signal that would demonstrate that they're about to have a seizure. It's I was amazed this got approved by the IRB, by the Ethics Committee, but they're very good at running these kinds of studies at Duke. And uh, a ketogenic diet tends to be super favorable. So now we're working on transitioning the study from the diet to uh, you know, ketone esters and ketone supplements and moving the animal model work, which we've done a whole lot of, into that realm. Actually, the ketogenic diet efficacy has been demonstrated, and those subjects do consume a ketone salt and MCT product right before they get into the chamber. So that further boosts their ketone levels and that adds more physiological resilience, getting a, a little bit more. And, and we have not published this yet. That's been presented, but we are finally, there was a little bit of delay with COVID and everything to get the numbers up, but, but it's an ongoing project and it'll be extended into also looking at exercise performance under these conditions. Oh, wow. Fascinating. On that note, you know, the last question for us is around, you got so much science and research happening and there's so much happening in the world right now anything else you're particularly excited about to learn more about or, or still maybe work in progress for you yeah one thing about the research that we do I, I dabble in a lot of different things so i'd have to there are many different things that we're kind of working on now i would have to say that the work that we're doing testing continuous glucose monitoring and the levels app as a behavioral tool to modify our decisions when it comes to the, the food, the types of food that we eat, the timing of the food, and the total quantity, for example, you know, calorie content of the food, those variables can be drastically monitored when we're wearing a continuous glucose monitor. And we have the appropriate software that's giving us, that's not only telling us, hey, you're going outside of your optimal range and you may want to make adjustments depending upon the feedback that's coming in. And on the other end of the spectrum from the cell and animal research we're doing, we're looking at epigenetic effects of ketones. 
So come to find out, ketone molecules like beta-hydroxybutyrate and to some extent acetoacetate are very powerful epigenetic modifiers. And we're studying a genetic disease called Kabuki syndrome, which happens to be the PhD project for one of my students right now is just completely studying the epigenetic effects of ketones. And, uh, and there's some pretty remarkable neuroprotective effects that ketones can have, not by being an alternative energy substrate or reducing inflammation, although that could be epigenetic too, but actually uh, activation of genes that can enhance synaptic plasticity or neuroregeneration. So we're kind of really focused on neuroprotective, brain-enhancing epigenetic regulation of the ketone molecules. So I'm really excited about those two things. Fascinating. Please keep us posted. Dom, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being on.